This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Good morning. It's just gone four minutes after seven. Uh, you're listening to Classic Business Breakfast with myself, Nastasia Aronsa. Arabile is still in Manchester, so we'll catch up with him a little bit later on on the show. I'm quite disappointed because I was looking forward to Man United losing so Arabile could sing You Will Never Walk Alone. But uh, someone suggested that he should sing yesterday by the Beatles, seeing that, uh, you know, it was a draw yesterday. But uh, we'll catch up with him a little bit later on during the uh, hot news uh, segment. Nonetheless, coming up on the show... We know that the uh, release of the final report about the state of competition in South Africa's uh, private health care sector has been delayed. You may remember that uh, back last year we had the preliminary report that was released in July which concluded, amongst other things, that the sector was highly concentrated in the hands of a few major players. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Wesley Lekliti, who is from the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Witzvatsrand, about why the delays in fixing SA healthcare can impact South Africans. And then, as you may have heard in the news headlines, Energy Minister Jeff Khadeb has told reporters that IPPs are not to blame for ESCOM's financial woes, adding that the assertion is both misleading and false. So we'll speak to Thomas Gardner, the chairperson of the South African Independent Power Producers Association. We also look at uh, the crackdown that's uh, on rogue debit order fraud. We'll speak to Dr. Christoph Nivo, who's the chief executive at FNB Consumer. Over the weekend, we had APSA also coming out saying that they will reverse all those 99 rand debit orders that uh, people People have uh, experienced. So all this and more is coming up. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Quick check-in on the market. Stocks in Asia traded high this morning amid trade optimism after U.S. President Donald Trump announced a postponement of a closely watched deadline on March 1st. Shares in mainland China advanced in early trade following the positive developments, the Shanghai Composite jump being 2.3%, while the Shenzhen component gained 2.6%. Over in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng rose uh, half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei advanced uh, seven-tenths of a percent. Over on Wall Street side, on Friday, we had the Dow Jones gaining 181 points to 26,031 as Intel outperformed. The index broke above 26,000 for the first time since early November and posted its ninth consecutive weekly gain, its longest streak since uh, May 1995. The Nasdaq Composite uh, advanced nine-tenths of a percent to 7,527 as shares of Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Alphabet all closed higher. The S&P 500 jumping um, uh, six-tenths of a percent up 2,700 792 led by gains in the tech sector. Over in Europe, FTSE 100 uh, rose three tenths of a percent. The French CAC also in positive territory, uh, up nearly uh, three quarters of a percent. And the French, or rather the German DAX, up three tenths of a percent as well. Over here, we closed up nine tenths of a percent, uh, 55,993 points. And the top 40 up one percent. This is Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Seven minutes after seven, uh, to talk more in depth on the markets, we're joined in studio by Greg Davies, who's the head of wealth at Creators Capital. Greg, thank you so much for your time. 
your assessment of Friday's activity. Were you expecting, firstly, I think it's quite positive that we had tweets early hours of this morning from Donald Trump signaling what we all wanted to happen, that they are going to extend that deadline on March 1st. But taking that into consideration and a little bit of Friday's activity, what are your thoughts? You know, that's big, uh, that's big news for the markets, and I think the markets will, will probably climb on that news. Friday was a sort of subdued session. The volume, $18.4 billion. As you were saying in the intro, the market, 55990 So off the midweek high, which is mid-56s. But um, a couple of interesting stories coming out of, uh, out of Friday's trade. Uh, Tonga Tulit giving, giving a trading update, which was pretty poor, and the market uh, knocking that share back. Even, even the last hour of trade on, on a Friday, down 20%. It's going to be interesting to see how, how it trades this morning. They've got a lot of issues. I mean, it's the, you know, sugar prices, it's various other things, also the sugar tax as well. Is there anything in this company's control at this point? Yeah, and what they try to sort of re- reinvent themselves as a property company, because they obviously own vast tracts of land for, you know, for many, many years, plant- planting sugar cane, especially north of a Mishlanga kind of area. But suddenly the demand for, for, for land has been a lot less, and uh, I think that, that's where they've been hurt. So uh, a comment I saw out of uh, Wayne McCurry from uh, F&B Wealth and Investment, and he's of the view that Tonga could have done something to prepare the market before releasing that trading update, you know, a, a way in which you can prime the market so that it doesn't come back as a shock. Uh, do you share the same sentiments? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the really point of having a trading update so that when the full results come out, they're not such a big shock. But I think what he's saying is they must have been aware some time back uh, how bad things were. And the theory is, well, the rules are as soon as you become aware that your earnings are going to be more or less than 20% from the previous, you have to alert the market. So I think what he's saying is they're a little bit slow to do it. Also on a Friday afternoon, that sounds ridiculous, but they think all the brokers are at the pub. No one will notice. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, so you have EAH, uh, which came out of news. So they're in a race to restructure their IT business. Uh, been in the headlines for, I think, a year or so, and it just doesn't seem to get better. Yeah, we could do a whole hour just on EOH and its its various problems. Um, it almost seems more on a weekly basis and, and a new story breaks. But um, they've got a new a CEO, that's Stephen Van Koller, and I think he's got, got the reins firmly in, in hand. And uh, I think he'll start to turn it around. One or two more issues um, that need to be resolved, but let's hopefully they can have a better week. The share price sort of worst of this week was down to 12 Rand. I think by the end of trade on Friday, it's back to 17. But keep in mind, sort of three years ago, it was 170 Rand a share. This morning, you have uh, Fortress saying that they're ready to let go of their stake in Resilient. So the reason why this story actually caught my attention outside of what Resilient has been going through over the past uh, year or so is that Fortress appointed PwC to do a thorough investigation into its affairs. So the preliminary report is expected at the end of February. I feel like PwC is owing me a lot of things. The Fortress, uh, the Resilient report, of course, my long awaited Steinoff report. Yeah, that seems to be the one audit firm that's got its reputation very much intact. And they seem to be the go-to team in any of these things because if, I think if PwC gives you a clean bill of health, then the markets will put big credibility on that. So they, they must be working day and night, especially on on that Steinhoff story. Uh, interesting that Fortress is trying to sort of separate itself from Resilient. Uh, Resilient also sort of 
Um, there's some question marks about some trades that they've done over the last 18 months. I think there is an investigation by the FSCA here locally. So perhaps trying to put some distance between themselves and resilience. This week, um, this is what most, you know, if you read a lot of uh, media headlines, business news headlines, you'll often see this uh, word play that'll say there is a slew of company results and journalists love that. And this week is, is no different. There's Mondi, there's AB InBev, BAT, ShopRite, Sasol, Implats, the one you quite like a little bit, uh, Grindrod, Santum, and a whole host of others. And they just go on. Which one of these are you going to be keeping an eye on? Well, if I just go to, I do, I do remember when I first started on the show, I was a big fan of Impala and you thought I'd <laughs> fallen in love with the stock, but it's actually gone from around 17 Rand up to about 52 Rand. And so that, that it's returned the love which I've given it, which, I'm, which was quite pleasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I'm really looking forward to this week on Thursday is British American Tobacco. You know, the stock's been battered down. I mean, the all-time high there was around about 960. It got smashed all the way down to 420. It's recovered to about 520 now. But the market will be holding its breath to make sure to see that they can continue paying big dividends. And so it's been a stock that's been in favor with the market because it can spin off big dividends all the time. So we'll be waiting to see if they can continue that process. Over the weekend, and because I follow you uh, on Twitter, you were following Warren Buffett's shareholder letter that came out, I think, on Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. Did you go through that? I had a good good look at it. And I mean, it's general themes are there. And I think what he's trying to tell the market is he's got he's sitting on a massive cash pile. Uh, He he would normally be making acquisitions, but he's everything that he looks at. uh, The share prices are too high. So maybe he's busy telling the market some of the blue chip counters share prices are are too high and he's going to sit on the cash and wait for opportunities. But an amazing person. I mean, well into his I think he's 92. And um, to still be putting out those letters, and yeah. I mean, a brilliant, probably we'll never see the life, the likes of that in our lifetimes again. Uh, him and Charlie Munger. So here's a question for you. Um, what does Marcus Huster and a guy by the name of Jeffrey Skilling have in common? Um, I think Skilling, if I remember correctly, he was an advisor to Buffett. Huster obviously is famous for his Steinhoff connections. Kind of, you almost had it there. Uh, so uh, Skilling used to be the former CEO of Enron. That's right. And uh, he was released from federal custody over the weekend after serving more than 12 years in prison for his role in, uh, I suppose, what was probably the biggest scandals in American history. Yes, quite right. So there is a good connection there because, um, I mean, Stanoff is, you know, is, is South Africa's Enron, really, where it's all down to accounting scandals, really. Uh, so far, Mr. Eustace managed to avoid being even contacted by the authorities. I, I don't know how. Has been spotted at some nice restaurants in Stellenbosch, but uh, no sign of any police around him. <laughs> right. Well, we still have uh, Greg Davis with us uh, from Kratos Capital. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 15 minutes after 7. Over the weekend, Energy Minister Jeff Khadebe sought to clarify that ESCOM's financial problems are mostly related to cost increases, uh, including those uh, linked to the new build project and not independent power producers. To get his take on uh, some of the comments made by the minister, we're joined on the line by Thomas Garner, who is the chairperson of the South African Independent Power Producers Association. Thomas, thank you so much for your time this morning. Do you think, uh, yes, Yesterday's announcement by the minister will at least ease some of the tensions that we've uh, witnessed over the past few months with regards to IPPs. 
Good morning, Anastasia. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, I, I do think so. Uh, last week at the African Energy and Dollar, we had a discussion about the whole uh, narrative in the country around IPPs and energy. And I think the challenge that we had was this whole thing of, of not creating a context. And I think Minister Vadebe's uh, press release really created the context to say what are, what are lies and, and what is reality. And I think now we've got a basis to work from. Right. Is it worth perhaps meeting with the unions again in order to reiterate this message? Because it, it seems as though there's a broken chain message going down from those who probably know and those who are at the grassroots, particularly their employees. Because if they're getting the wrong messages from their union leaders, it just leads to all kinds of chaos. Absolutely agree. And I think uh, we need to do more than just meeting with the unions. We really need to form a, an, an alliance uh, as South Africans to make sure that we uh, navigate this complex road from where we are to to where we want to be. In, and in that, we need to take the unions and the workers and the poor with us to say, how are we going to create more jobs through uh, IPPs, through renewable energy, than there is now? Perhaps you could share with us, uh, you know, one thing that listeners can always bear in mind when it comes to IPPs, whether it be on costs or any other factors, in order for us to um, clear some of the misconceptions, what would those be? I think uh, the the program as designed by the DOE and um, and uh, the IPP offices is a very stringent program. So, for instance, uh, if we as an IPP tender or bid for a project, we have to promise how many jobs we create. Uh, what will the black shareholding be? What will the black woman shareholding be? And we are held to those commitments. For instance, um, we report on a quarterly basis to the DOE. Uh, let's say we said there will be a thousand black jobs and of that there will be 600 black women jobs. We need to report on that quarterly. And if we don't make that, they give us penalty uh, points. And if you if you don't rectify those penalty points in the next quarter, um, it builds up. And then at some stage, your power purchase agreement gets cancelled. So um, there's, it's really a program that, that uh, the public and everybody else can believe that it's stringent, um, it's being managed in that way, and because of that, IPPs are overperforming on uh, on jobs created and on, on, on shareholding and all of the things that were promised. Right. Thomas, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. That is Thomas Garner, who is the chairperson of the South African Independent Power Producers Association. Getting news reports, and we're going to follow up on this uh, as to whether it's actually really happening, that ESCOM employees are on strike at Kusile over jobs and uh, demobilization. So we'll keep an eye on that one and perhaps even see if we can get some kind of comment from ESCOM um, just to find out if this really is true and what is the impact if uh, any on consumers and whether we might even actually have these uh, protests continuing right up until uh, election so we'll keep an eye on that particular story but for now let's have a look at uh, traffic every morning Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on classic business 
Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 21 minutes after 7. The release of a final report about the state of competition in uh, the country's private health care sector has been uh, delayed again. Last year, we had the preliminary report that was released uh, around July that concluded, amongst other things, that the sector was highly concentrated in the hands of a few major players. So why the delays to fixing uh, health care are bad news for South Africans? So we'll have that conversation right now with Dr. Wesile Glita, who is the Assistant Dean of of strategic affairs at the Faculty of Health that's at uh, Wits University. Dr. Glita, thank you so much for your time. Perhaps you can uh, you know, ex- explain to us why the, the delays in this report being concluded can have an impact on South Africans. Uh, good morning to you and your listeners. Um, thanks uh, for taking time uh, not to chat to me and uh, for me to chat to your listeners. Um, the bottom line is that South Africa has committed itself uh, years ago as part of its post-1994 democratic breakthrough to create a unified, integrated national health system. We continue now to have uh, you know, what we call a two-tier system with public sector and private sector, and very little way of working together. So the establishment of the health market inquiry uh, was a, an attempt to have a, a better understanding of the challenges facing competition resulting in the increasing uh, costs of uh, uh, healthcare in, in, in private sector and its implications thereof. Uh, understanding the private sector, uh, its role, its complexities, uh, comp- whether competition is effective or not, to the benefit of the broader national health system because it would create an understanding of the national health system so that we can better integrate our public sector towards a unified national health system. That's a starting point that I think South Africans need to understand. The market inquiry recommendations create a preliminary diagnosis of the problem. They are not telling us what we did not know. It is known fact that there is limited or no competition in the private sense of Africa because of the nature of its structuring. It is characterized by groups of uh, hospital groups that are highly concentrated and they are basically not meaningfully competing in order to serve the population that uses their services. If you look at medical schemes, it's the same issue. Two medical schemes uh, dominate uh, with one accounting for more than 50%, you know, of uh, the, the membership, who know what to call uh, medical skin beneficiaries. That's a challenge because if you have such dominance, others are just escorting that one. They are not competing against that one. It has become a giant. Uh, that is passed on, you know, uh, to members in terms of uh, increasing costs for specialist service, increasing costs for hospitals, a reduced uh, quality in terms of the, the medical cover package or benefits that they should be able to get out of the medical schemes. The third point, which is common across our national health system as well, is that it, the report has shown that there are significant weaknesses in governance, you know, in the private sector. Be it you are governing the, the practice of a, a, a general practitioner or a specialist, it's difficult and, and, and actually, the public sector seems better organized in terms of governance compared to private sector. 
Now we would need to standardize the governance framework between the two in order to hold the provider, which is the hospital group, the practitioner, which is the doctor, you know, to, in terms of how practices should do. There is also a gap in terms of how to compare the two sectors, if you to put it that way, as two sectors, for uh, in terms of outcomes. There is no standard measure to say private sector is working better than public sector. It's only a perception. We need objective measures between the two systems, you know, so that we can now move towards that direction. Now, these are key steps, uh, building blocks towards the, 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 the unified national health system. Mm. Yes, and the national health insurance is just the funding mechanism, and that funding mechanism for it to be meaningful, uh, to be informed, mm. we need to address these aspects and inform the national health bill, insurance bill and the, the medical schemes amendment bill, which at the moment, you know, there has been input. We're waiting to see what those input, you know, have have made. But this report is a significant contributor to those to the input in terms of the changes required in the the amendments required in terms of those two bills. Speaking of that bill, the medical uh, schemes amendment bill, perhaps you can remind us what uh, it was aimed to achieve. Remember, the medical schemes amendment bill is a building. Is based premised on amending the Medical Schemes Act of 1998, and the Medical Schemes Act of 1998 is a primary tool to regulate, you know, medical schemes, the funders, if I put it that way, and the benefits that the medical schemes members ideally should access uh, through the funders and the behaviour of the medical scheme administrators. What South Africa has observed is that the benefits over time has been declining because of the rising cost. Now we need to diagnose that and try to ensure that benefits continue to better, to improve, and so that the quality of those patients uh, who access those services continues to go up. The other challenge, you know, is that the Medical Schemes Act, you know, outlawed, uh, you know, um, selecting patients with their members according to risk. You know, so that aspect has uh, the Medical Schemes Maneuvered and and, and basically created multitude of plans, uh, benefit plans or options in order to serve the clients. But when you look at them closely, and the, the, the health market inquiry actually has picked that up, that though medical schemes believe that is innovation, to some extent it was a way of subverting this element that you know the, you can't select according risk. You know, so that is another component that, you know, we need to strengthen and make sure that we've got a mechanism to manage, you know, the risk selection issues that are associated with people with the schemes uh, and membership behavior. So there is that. And the, the, the amendments are an attempt to try to resolve those things, make sure that the benefits continue to improve and we reduce uh, or mitigate uh, or come up with strategies to reduce selection based on, you know, age or on uh, sickness, you know, uh, and, and other complexities that are associated with uh, being, being a, 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 a patient. So that, 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 the medical scheme is trying to deal with that. But also that medical scheme amendment piece must assist the NHIP, you know, 
to be able to have a meaningful effect when it, is, it gets implemented in mm. terms of regulating broadly the sector, but also making sure that this strengthens governance arrangements, particularly the role of the Council for Medical Schemes. And there are new suggestions there as well in certain areas. Uh, there's something they call uh, the, the supply side regulator, basically looking at the supply side dealing with the hospitals, dealing with the providers, and making sure that you are able to intervene and promote competition and acceptable behavior that can be transmitted or transferred for the benefit of the members uh, of the schemes. Dr. Glitter, thank you so much for your time. He's the Assistant Dean of Strategic Affairs at uh, the Faculty of Health Sciences, and that's located at Wits University. Time to have a look at news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.31, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, ASCOM and we've also had news about its unbundling. But uh, we're going to be talking about whether we're taking the necessary steps in solving our power crisis. And to have that conversation, I'm joined on the line by Katrina Gudino, who is the research associate at the University of Cape Town. Katrina, thank you so much uh, for your time. Since the announcement of the plans for ESCOM, there's been a lot of backlash, particularly from unions opposing this uh, unbundling. Let's start off there. The concerns they're raising with regards to perhaps even the fear of jobs and various other issues, are they being heard from your perspective? And how have we been dealing with this dialogue around ESCOM, in your view? Good morning. Thanks for having me on your show. And good morning to your listeners as well. I think the the issue you raise as the as the starting point is definitely a key starting point for the, this, this discussion. I think the unions have, for many decades, in fact, been opposed to power sector reforms uh, due to concerns around jobs and, and concerns around the private sector's role. I definitely think that in at this point in South Africa's electricity sector, uh, it's undeniable that we need some sort of restructuring, and I have seen uh, evidence that the unions are being brought to to the table in a way that they haven't before. And I think that that's critical because we are not going to be able to move forward without them. Um, In order to support this, researchers at the university are working on issues around the just transition, around understanding the role um, of labor in these types of processes and what the implications are going to be for jobs. And the research is already showing that starting to make changes in the electricity sector is actually job positive within the electricity sector and can support a movement towards least cost electricity, which is job positive for the whole economy. Right. One of the criticisms that has come out, and particularly maybe not from unions, but it was on the side of rating agencies, we had Moody saying that they need to see a credible, detailed plan on ESCOM because that will be able to, I suppose, create a different light in South Africa's uh, fiscal position. And that is something we haven't seen. We we have an idea of how much ESCOM is going to be getting in terms of, I suppose, call it financial assistance in inverted commas as if you want, but we still don't know how this is going to be rolled out. How do we deal with that? Because perhaps that could be even the first step in dealing with the misconception around uh, ESCOM. Indeed, I, I think that it is high time that we have a process where a detailed plan emerges from stakeholder engagement across the board. 
I think the budget speech last week, if you look into the budget itself, uh, there's a very informative annex called Annex W3, Fiscal Support for Electricity Market Reform, where we see some of the details about uh, at least the immediate timeline uh, starting to be put onto paper and putting into government's official position. I think that over the next few weeks and the next few months, this certainly has to be transformed into a very detailed plan. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to move forward. And I think the ESCOM task team is working very hard with the presidency and with the ESCOM board and with the relevant ministries to produce this. Um, but it's essential that, that all stakeholders are brought to the table and come to the table. And, and I definitely hope that the unions will be play a central role in that in moving the electricity sector forward. I know that uh, previous plans to restructure ESCOM, you know, either were bogged down or perhaps even uh, shelved due to lengthy policy and various other legislative processes. Are you optimistic that this new approach uh, could be what we need in the sense that we might have now a state-owned transmission company within the current legislative um, framework that could be a a first step in this process that could be quite long-term? Yes, I definitely am feeling more hopeful uh, looking at research from the rest of the world on how power sector reforms are implemented and what makes them work and what makes them gather the necessary momentum. There is a school of thought that believes that sort of a big bang, a first step that disrupts the current monopoly power, the current vested interests that may have sort of nefarious interests in in the way that the sector works, or perhaps um, a lack of understanding around how transformation could support their own interests, that disruption really makes a big difference and it's something that we are very hopeful to see. The establishment of a state-owned transmission company uh, would certainly be that next step and as I said, the budget has informed us as the public that that step will be taken by the middle of this year and if that step is taken, I believe that the next actions will follow and it will also call acts as a sounding call to bring other stakeholders to the table and support the next steps and be involved in deciding exactly how the private sector will be involved and exactly how the sector will be structured going forward. What are some of the benefits you're seeing from the unbundling of ESCOM if it's done correctly? I think one of the the ones that many listeners are, are interested in is around transparency and accountability. As the utility is currently structured as, and as we've seen in the ESCOM inquiry and now are starting to be, to see the details emerge from the Zondo Commission, the utility is very large by international standards. It's very unusual to have a vertically integrated utility in the way that ours is for, for an electricity system of our size. And that has certainly contributed to a situation where corruption has flourished and this has had direct cost for the consumer. It has also prevented around prevented competitive procurement and transparent procurement, which has seen the prices around new power being pulled on by ESCOM escalating year by year by year, and often with associated problems of this, as we've seen with Majupi and Kusile, two mega power plants who are not operating as they should and who have also gone more than double over budget. In contrast, when we look at new power that's being tra- that's being contacted transparently. Uh, this has mainly been through the Renewable Energy IPP program. Uh, we see that costs have steadily decreased over the last couple of years, and there is definitely space for them to decrease further. 
This doesn't mean that Scrum Generation will be out of the picture. Indeed, maybe it will act as an impulse to ensure that Scrum Generation in the future will be more competitive, more price competitive, ultimately benefiting the consumers and the economy and indeed creating an environment where jobs can be created across the sector. Katrina, thank you so much for your time. We'll have to leave it there. That's uh, Katrina Godino, who is a research associate at the University of uh, Cape Town. An article which you can have a look at on the MoneyWeb uh, site, which I suppose deals with the theme we've been uh, touching on uh, throughout the morning around uh, independent power producers. Uh, the headline for this particular article is titled Government is not renegotiating IPP products. Uh, earlier, we may have mentioned that uh, the minister yesterday morning uh, said that the government is not planning to renegotiate the power producer agreements with uh, IPPs in the first two bid rounds of uh, the Department of Energy's Renewable Energy Independent Power Producers uh, Program. And this comes after his uh, cabinet colleague, Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Godan, earlier in the week indicated that government might seek to renegotiate the high tariffs agreed upon with the successful bidders in bid window one and two. And another fascinating one, and we've spoken about this uh, last year, was with regards to the city of Joburg's inclusionary housing policy. That one uh, written by one of our contributors, Ray Matlaka. You can have a look at that one with regards to the misreaction that it's getting from uh, private property developers. Uh, But nonetheless, let's have a look at news headlines, rather traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.43, we're going to be talking about rebuilding our continent's reputation. So investments in uh, African businesses grew by almost 300% in the past year. The growth in business opportunities and investments proves that confidence in the uh, rather on the continent is rising. That's according to uh, Regine Leroux, who is the MD at Reputation Matters. Regine, thank you so much for your time this morning. I mean, when you look at the continent, perhaps even... Uh, you know, starting from 2012, there were all kinds of reports that focused on Africa, whether it's Africa rising or the economist having a different topic when they look at uh, the continent's ability to grow. What can we take away from, I suppose, the past few years when you look at the continent, be it the challenges, the trends that you may have noticed over the past few years or so? Morning. Um, yeah, there's been many, many changes afoot. Um, and in terms of what's happening on the continent, it's the continent's time of of, of um, being out there. And important to take stock of some of these challenges and changes in the trends that we have seen over the past couple of years. And I think so importantly is to rebuild the reputation and the confidence within the continent itself. Um, and part of building that reputation is just to take stock of what have been some of the challenges. So it, it starts with understanding that I think communication has become an incredibly important component of a reputation and building the reputation. But what's even more important is that it's a lot more than just fancy communication and marketing and PR. There's very clear building blocks that we need to have a look at when it comes to building that reputation. So it's good that there are a lot more focused areas on ISIS communication, 
but we need to have a look at, the, at all the aspects of, of the communication side of things. So very often before embarking on any type of communication or marketing initiative is the importance of research, is to get to understand what are the perceptions out there because that's a reputation. A reputation is built on perceptions. It's not necessarily the truth, but it's someone's reality and it's that reality that gets communicated on the continent, outside the continent, and that then impacts whether there is foreign investment, whether there's tourism, which has a direct impact on, on our bottom line as a, as a country and continent. So it starts with the reputation research side of things and formulating the key messages. And what we've found is just touching on the research side of things because that's a big, big challenge that we've found in the communication space is that it's, it's always quite hard to quantify, to show the hard work that goes into an initiative of communication and speaking the language of the C-suite, so to speak. And when we are able to quantify reputation and put a percentage to it, it actually gives the communicators, gets the communicators noticed at the high level. Um, and it actually just gives so much more um, a solid base to work from opposed to just assumptions. Um, so yeah, so research specifically the reputational risk assessment helps us to see the crisis scenarios and be proactive because that's, that's a big difference is very often people only start looking at managing their reputations when it's way too late. So that's being very reactive. When we manage a reputation, it's all about being proactive and seeing how can we be um, a lot more proactive to building a reputation. So one of the things we actually want to start mm. is we want to start a movement whereby it becomes common practice for organizations to share their reputation scores, especially as part of a due diligence process. Because when we look at a reputation, as I said earlier, it's not just the communication element of it, but if we look at the leadership, we look at the values, the ethics, how and how are companies conducting business, how are they conducting themselves, right. the level of employees. So looking at the reputational score in, um, takes all of that into consideration. So yeah, so that, that's quite a mouthful, but I think it's good <laughs> to take all of that into consideration. Regine, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Regine LaRue, who is the MD at Reputation Managers, talking to us about building the continent's reputation. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Uh, Greg uh, Davies, who is the head of wealth at Kratos Capital, is still with us uh, in studio. Greg, the one thing we didn't talk about is uh, multi-choice day listing on Wednesday. Yeah, that's pretty exciting news, really. So how it'll work is you'll be a NASPAS shareholder. Uh, for each NASP- one NASPAS share you've got, you'll get a, a multi-choice share. A lot of debate in the market on what price that share will come on it. I, I spent some time looking at it on the weekend at 7 Rand 20 of earnings. So I should imagine it will come on about 85 Rand a share. But I have seen some, some heavyweight uh, brokers in the market giving a price of, of 200 Rand a share. Normally, something which is unbundled from the main company would, would, would be sold off because people buy nice pass to get exposure to 10 cent. Multi-choice is just a byproduct of that. But I think multi-choice will still be in the top 40 index. I think there, there might be some buying. So it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. That's, that'll be on Wednesday.
Any other news uh, you're going to be keeping an eye on? Yeah, this is, I was, as we were saying in the intro, quite a bit of results. Yeah. Tuesday's ShopRite and, and Cash Build. Um, I think later today's Sassol. Um, so some big heavyweight companies reporting this week. So here's the thing. Last week, I think it was on Friday, Gary Boyson was in studio. So we had a conversation about what phones everybody had in studio. And I cannot remember. I think somebody had a Samsung phone. It may have been... Um, may have been the CEO of um, Altron, if I'm not mistaken. But nonetheless, and Arabile, of course, he's got a, an Android phone. So yesterday, um, while everybody was excited about Man United and Liverpool, there was uh, Samsung Electronics, as we know, they unveiled their new phone. But Huawei upped the ante with a, a competing device that has a price tag of about, let's see, $2,600. Yeah, that, that's going to be the next big battle, and I think um, that, yeah, Apple can't just rest on their laurels now. They've got they've got to press ahead and give us great products. But uh, products coming out of China, it'll match certainly matching what's coming out of the US at the moment. So they've got uh, one of these foldable phones. I think we're going back to say early two thousands, but in a more sleek sexier edge for phones where screens can do things that you didn't expect them to do five years ago. Yeah, I used to love those um, clip open phones. It used to feel like James Bond, you know. But here's the question that I asked uh, Gary. I mean, we had Apple just recently talk about the challenges they were having in China when it comes to um, smartphones. And now we have Huawei and Samsung launching these very high-end expensive cell phones. And you kind of wonder whether if Apple had the same problems, whereas, um, you know, the numbers that they were able to sell weren't where they wanted them to be and people aren't upgrading how different will the market then be for a Huawei and a Samsung? Surely it's going to be just as difficult. Yeah, it's the old age-old battle. And if you remember back to the, the, the BlackBerry days, a BlackBerry at one point completely dominated and everybody had the BlackBerry and had that big keyboard and everything. They made a product for the masses, really. And then when Apple took a look at it and said, well, we'll make a product for the you know the top 1%. And so it seems like Apple's methods worked out. So I, I still think uh, Apple will always have uh, the high-end markets, uh, hopefully. Here's a fun question. When you are looking at investing, I mean, everybody goes through um, the, the companies that are supposed that are defensive, that you can trust and all um, all those aspects that you check. But if you had to look at an app on your phone, which app would you invest in if they were to have uh, an IPO? So say Pinterest, for instance, if you were a Pinterest uh, person, they are planning to have an IPO pretty soon. Which company excites you that you would look at that is outside of the norm of what is uh, considered safe? Yeah, I suppose you would go conservative and say something like Uber's app or certainly the Uber Eats, um, you know, because you have to eat and you have to be transported around at some point. I think Uber might be listed some, somewhere overseas, but certainly I think that, that that's going to be a growing market. I think people are more and more heading that way. You know, initially Uber is when you've had a big nice house and you need a lift home, but I think people are just enjoying sitting at the back of the car and reading the newspaper a lot more these days. So we're supposed to catch up with uh, Arabile, but we can't reach him. So I'm I'm not quite sure. You would think he's celebrating, but he's not. But we'll try and find him uh, tomorrow sometime just to get his perspective on what's happening in Manchester. Nonetheless, we'll move on with the show after this.
we talk about uh, the crackdown that a lot of the banks are embarking on when it comes to rogue debit order fraud. We'll have that conversation with uh, Dr. Christoph Nivot. He is from FNB Consumer. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. It's about seven minutes uh, to the top of the hour. FNB has detected abnormally high volumes and disputes of suspicious uh, debit orders with uh, descriptors Procall and Mzansi in uh, late, rather late last year and early this year. And to talk to us about what they're doing with regards to that, we're joined on the line by Dr. Christoph Nivot, who is the chief executive of FNB Consumer. Dr. Nivot, thank you so much uh, for your time. Perhaps let's start off there. I mean, there were a whole host of complaints last year, whether you were looking at uh, some of the trending topics with regards to this uh, on Twitter. From your side as FNB, what have you done to be able to deal with this issue? Hi, Natasha. Nice to be on the show. Look, I think it's a very um, emotional issue when people just take money um, off your account. And I think even the, you know, all, the, all the corruption in the country, people, people are tired of that. So. Um, what we've what we've got in place is actually quite a few proactive measures for people to to get that um, right. So when when you when a new debit order is loaded, we will typically SMS you. You'll be able to see you know whether you authorised that debit order. Um, even if a debit order has already run, you can on the app and online you can dispute it um, for free under under two hundred rand, and the money gets back immediately. But I guess the bigger issue is so what happens with people that do not dispute it and what happens with the people who's actually behind this? Those are the kind of questions people have. Right. Tell us about the work that you're doing with the Payments Association of South Africa. So in terms of once you've identified that this debit order was uh, not authorized by one of your clients and perhaps this particular company that's doing these debit orders has been quite frequent and they do it quite regularly. What work are you doing with the association in making sure that these people are either blacklisted and they're not allowed to do this kind of activity any further? Yeah, and Natasha, so the, the key thing is when we pick up that there's very high dispute rates, such as what happened on these two descriptors um, over December and January, then we do investigative work to really find out um, if, if, you know, because there's a lot of reasons why people may, may, may do disputes, right? They may do it for cash flow management or it may be contract disputes. In these cases, our investigations pointed out that there's uh, actually fraud, that the, the mandates that were given to us by customers where we asked for the mandates were actually fraud. It was not the customer who gave those mandates. So in that case, um, clearly, we work with the, the, um, with, with the payments association because it's a cross-industry um, cross problem. Um, these kind of parties, you know, may come from another bank and be running debit orders um, against our base uh, in FNB. And we have to tackle this from an industry perspective. Are there ways in which uh, customers can protect themselves, if any? Absolutely. Look, like I said, so you would get an, uh, um, a message saying that a new debit order has been loaded, right? And it's not something that's been running on your account for months or years. It's, it's a new one. So if you recognize that, it's your obligation to... To, um, to reply to the message saying this is unauthorized. Like I said, even if it already runs, and yet, um, you, you've got the obligation to, 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 to dispute it. What we are trying to do is to actually solve this problem for everyone else who did not dispute it and who, you know, who's not regularly checking their bank account to make sure that we, that we actually investigate these and we tackle it at the industry level and that everybody gets their money back, including 
any fees that may have been raised through the process. From uh, the F&B consumer side of things, uh, what work are you embarking on perhaps this year in order to raise awareness and I suppose even consumer education for your clients? Yeah, look, absolutely. Look, so I think the, the, the best form of education is when it's specific to a customer, like when we're sending you a message saying, please check this debit order. It is, you know, it is not, um, it doesn't look right. Or, you know, it's a new one um, in, in fairness. So, so we're doing, and I think we do need to tackle the, um, the, the syndicates that sit behind this. We need to tackle systematically as well. Because they'll, 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 they keep the, the, developing the modus of branding to tackle it. But like you said, of course, consumer education and raising awareness of this issue. People tell me, why are you talking about this? This is a negative topic. And I say, look, it's very important for us to talk about topics that are in our customers' interest and that will inform them about how to protect themselves. Dr. Nivot, thank you so much uh, for your time this morning. That's Dr. Christoph Nivot, who is the Chief Executive at F&B Consumer. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumet and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Got about two minutes left uh, until the end of the show. Yesterday, news came out that President Sol Ramaphosa has established a special tribunal to fast track the finalization of more than seven billion rand in civil claims that are linked to corrupt or irregular state uh, contracts and ensure that uh, looted taxpayers' money is returned to the state. So the tribunal's work will start once the rules of court have uh, been published. And Ramaphosa's decision using uh, government powers given to him by the special investigation units and a special tribunals act comes after the SIU last year only managed to recover about 34 million rand in cash unlawfully spent by the state so that is a definitely a story that you can uh, keep an eye on and look at as well. And there's also one us making headlines this morning with a medical body giving no reason for dropping Bonita's probe. This uh, came last week that the scheme threatened to interdict uh, Business Day newspaper from publishing details of the draft report. You can have a look at that. Uh, news story, one of those making headlines this morning. Greg Davies from uh, Kratos Capital, thank you so much for your time. We'll be back tomorrow. Unfortunately, we couldn't get a hold of uh, Arabile, but uh, we'll try to talk to him tomorrow just to find out what is happening in Manchester. And uh, what what do you do when your team has a draw? Do you celebrate? Do you not celebrate? Are you just thankful for the fact that you didn't lose? How does it work? But uh, that's it for me, Greg Davies. It's eight o'clock.